You know, if you haven't thought of this, you only have 124 days to complete your Christmas shopping and get your decorations ready. I know it's stunning, isn't it? Uh, Some of you are in full panic mode now. I actually looked that up last night just out of curiosity because one of the concepts from the passage in Titus 2 is that of adorning the, the doctrine of Christ, adorning the gospel, if you will. And that got my mind thinking in terms of decorations. And we decorate things that are special or we decorate for special occasions. And though it's not going to be in the text that uh, I preach this morning and that we study through together, I, I say that because I want you to keep in mind that the, the gospel itself, the doctrine that we devote ourselves to, must translate into living. Um, we've touched on that already in the course of the service, and Paul will actually use a word here toward the end of this particular paragraph, uh, ca- calling all believers to adorn the doctrine of God. And you do that by your life. And we're going to read this portion together and then focus on verses 1 through 3 this morning. Uh, but, you know, a- as the holidays start rolling around, and some of you actually decorate on every major holiday, and I guess what, Labor Day would be the next one. I don't know what decorations you're going to put up for that, but God bless you as you do. But when you decorate your house, whether it be for a party or a holiday, I hope that'll prompt you to think in terms of, you know, my life as a follower of Jesus should adorn the gospel should decorate this good news of Jesus who lived and died and rose again, of of God who forgives our sins and brings this transforming grace, this power to work in us. That's the ultimate decoration. Well, let's read Titus 2, verses 1 through 10, although it's just verses 1 through 3 that we'll look at, but I want you to see the whole paragraph in its context, and then we'll pray and ask for God's blessing together. Follow along either in your copy of God's Word, or if, there is, uh, if there's not one available to you there in front of you, you can read the words on the screen as well. Titus 2, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Not slanderers or slave to much wine, they are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. And now notice this is, this is one of the first big purposes that Paul mentioned in this paragraph. That, or you could even read, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that, here's our, our, third, our second purpose statement in this paragraph, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves or servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And here comes the third purpose statement, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we need help. We need help to comprehend the heights and depths the width and length of your love for us. We need your help to comprehend this powerful, life-changing, life 
altering truth. We need your help to understand this portion of Scripture open before us today. And so we ask, Spirit of God, that you would come in the great power that you possess as God and in the personal tenderness that flows out of your heart as God and meet us where we are, lead us in right thinking that we in turn may give ourselves to right living. And we are thankful that you have promised to do these things for those who call on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you missed last, last week's service, uh, you should at minimum go back and listen to the message. Matt preached an outstanding message from the tail end of chapter 1. And it's critical to understanding even where we are in chapter 2. And I want you to continue to think in terms of what's, what's the overarching theme and direction of this letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to his friend and pastor, Titus. And so he has touched on several things that, that have bearing even on the commands that are about to be given to older men and older women. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. But I want to review a couple of things from chapter 1 and, and just kind of grab some things that Matt touched on last week, set them in front of you again so we, so we don't disconnect chapter 2 from chapter 1. It's actually just one letter. Uh, Bible translators and authors or, or editors are the ones who inserted chapters and verses. Paul just wrote paragraph after paragraph. So sound doctrine, first of all, is going to counter false teaching. And there were several examples of that. I want to categorize them in three particular ways. The, the first, if you remember from chapter 1, verse 10, and Matt mentioned the circumcision party, th that's actually a gospel, if you will, of Jesus plus extra ritual. Oh, they, they might actually say, sure, we believe Jesus is our Savior, but you've got to do more stuff if you're really going to be saved. A second error that appears in chapter 1 is found in verse 14, and Paul admonishes Titus uh, that there are those who would devote themselves to Jewish myths. And so that's what I would describe as Jesus plus extra knowledge. And let me give you just a little word of, as to what those myths might be. It refers to stories that opponents of Titus's and Paul's and the early church had created around minor Old Testament characters, stories that, that contained a secret knowledge. You won't actually find it in the Old Testament, uh, but, but they'd come in and say, but there's more to this than you've been told. Isn't it really amazing that all these particular things happened? Well, Paul says straight up, they're myths. They're just tales. And then in verse 14, he also mentions the commands of the people. And I would say that's Jesus plus extra works. Commands that sound spiritual, probably similar, similar to some of those things mentioned in 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 5, or Colossians 2, verses 20 to 22, where Paul is, is sending letters to other churches and other pastors, and, and they are ordinances or commands of people that don't come out of the Bible they actually come out of somebody's imagination, and they sound spiritual because they'll be like, don't, don't touch this particular item, don't taste this particular food, don't, don't do these things, and they sound spiritual, but Paul says in Colossians 2, they actually have no power to make you more spiritual. As a matter of fact, they could actually make you more self-righteous, which in the end makes you less spiritual. So sound doctrine is what counters the false teaching or false doctrine and ideas that that have been true of every generation. 
Now that leads us to Paul's main point here. Sound doctrine is intended to produce sound living, but look at how he gets there. Look at verse 1 again. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teaching is essential to the life of every believer. It's essential to the life of a church like ours, just one little local assembly. We're not the only church in the world, right? We're one of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of assemblies that have gathered all around the world today to open God's word with a view that we might know it, that our lives might be changed by it, and that our lifestyles would look differently by the end of this day than they did yesterday. Maybe only incrementally, but there is a change underway as we come under the authority of God's word. So Paul says to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That is, what is consistent. And you know, if, if you've never read Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible, you must do it at some point. And when you devote yourself to the word of God, you begin to see, actually, first of all, it's just one story. It's one story of a great God who first created all that is and then set out to redeem all that was broken by the first man and woman who sinned and rebelled against him. There's, there's really only one hero in this story. It's the God of heaven. Generations like us, generation after generation, are the recipients of the hero's work. But then you also begin to dig in and see that the, the good news of a coming Savior, which is the message of the Old Testament, was fulfilled when Christ arrived. Uh, arrived. And so now we look back on it. There's this beautiful simplicity and continuity in the Scripture. And what Paul is saying is, Titus, you must teach what accords with this one great story. God never gives us his truth simply to fill our heads with knowledge. His truth is always intended to impact our hearts and by the impact upon our hearts then impact the way we live. So that's where we begin to see very quickly this transition from teach sound doctrine, not just to counter the false notions that are out there about Jesus plus extra ritual or Jesus plus extra knowledge or Jesus plus extra works. No, we want to take people deeper and deeper into the knowledge of Christ and the work that he has done so that they might be changed. And so let's look at the first two categories of living sound doctrine. I say categories. They're really categories of people. And in this whole chapter, there actually are six. As I was reading through that, there are the older men, and we'll look at them this morning briefly. There are older women. And then he speaks of younger women and then younger men. And then Paul inserts a couple of words for Titus himself, like, do it this way, brother. And then he comes around to servants, those who are going into the workforce every day. And some of them were actually slaves, by the way. But there's good hope for all of us in this word, in, in these Word. So let's look first of all at older men. Uh, it's not quite as hard for men, but it's still not easy. Uh, I don't know of too many men who want to like go, yeah, that's me. Finally in the category of older. Uh, for what it's worth, both older men and older women, uh, if you look through the literature of that day, not just the Bible, but literature, it probably refers to those who are 50-ish and up. So there you go. Um, but you know what? God doesn't see this as a handicap. Men and ladies. He doesn't see this old age as a disadvantage. He actually sees it as a profound advantage for the church. Now, the sound living of older men ought to be characterized by several things. So look at your, your Bible again and notice the first word that we actually translate into a hyphenated uh, English concept of sober-minded. Literally means unmixed with wine. 
Now, that, that would be a literal translation. It wouldn't capture the context of what Paul is really after here. If any of you are reading from the New American Standard, uh, you would see this word is translated as temperate. If you have the New Living Translation, you are reading the words exercise self-control. And so you begin to get an idea that this is a characteristic of a man who is not given to extremes, you don't see the pendulum of his heart or life or thinking just swinging from one extreme to the other, but rather this is a man who is clear-headed, we might say. These are men who are able to judge situations and circumstances of life with wisdom and clarity. Then notice the second word, dignified, that has the idea of one who is worthy of respect or esteem. There, there's a sense of a man who is revered, and it, and it is tied in particular to his behavior. One author writes, it signifies that which lifts the mind from the cheap and tawdry to that which is noble and good and of moral worth. Have you ever been around a, a, an older man, a number of years, who just never matured? It's particularly painful to see a man in his 50s or 60s who's still trying to hang on to high school. You know, maybe the mullet haircut he just never got rid of, or, you know, maybe he's always talking about, you know, his, his, uh, his achievements back in the day. And, and after a while, you start to pity a guy like that because he just, he never grew up. He never matured. And, and though he may look, you may be able to look at a calendar and say he is in his 50s or 60s or beyond, there's nothing about this man's life that, that creates a sense of awe. There should be a lifestyle about older men in an assembly like this that causes others to notice and say, here's a man worthy of respect. And men, we don't, we don't walk around demanding that from other people, but there ought to be a spirit about us that when people are with us, they, they just sense that God is present. That's what so much of this comes down to ultimately. It's like we're just living in the fear of God just in awe of who he is, that his word is residing in us, that his spirit is moving in us in the ordinary days of life, dignified. Third characteristic that God desires to characterize older men in churches like ours is self-controlled, a sound mind. One definition of this uses these words in this way to describe self-control. Wisely keeping self-control over one's passions and desires. Wisely keeping. That says there's a man there who, even though he may be in the middle of difficult circumstances or perplexing days, still exercises uh, an amount of control mentally. He exercises it emotionally. There's just this stability that pervades his life. He is a, a man who is self-controlled. And you say, that sounds like uh, something similar to sober-minded. You're right. They're, they're like close cousins. It's characteristic that Paul will apply actually to four different groups throughout this chapter. You'll see it again in verse 4 and 5 and 7. So it's not just older men who are to be characterized by self-control. And then he uses the word sound. Look again at the text with me. And, and that word sound modifies three other particular categories. It's the word, sound is the word that, that we have used to kind of describe the whole series. A healthy church. A sound church. That's what we're getting at here. And notice, though, it is sound with reference to this man's faith. Now, when we speak of faith, sometimes we talk about 
our faith as a church. And that would represent the, the body of truths that we believe, our doctrinal statement we could describe as our statement of faith. That could be what Paul has in view, but it seems more likely that what Paul has in mind is actually this man's active faith. He's exercising what he believes in everyday life. So it's going to emerge in his conversation. If you could crawl in his head, and you would see how his faith is shaping his thoughts. It has to do with this man's active pursuit and obedience and service and following of God. And his faith should look healthy. I think it's interesting that Paul doesn't say older men need to have perfect faith, healthy faith. Because who of us could have perfect faith, right? I began this day, as I often do, with the Word of God open, and um, boy, there was just, there's a lot of background noise in my soul. And I'm going to tell you, the first waking minutes of this day were not really moments of strong faith. That, that's why I read God's Word and then pray, and if you could even read some of the things I recorded in my prayer, you, you might even say, wow, there are some struggles in Danny's heart this morning. Yeah, but God in his kindness through, through his word, through that dialogue of prayer, begins to nourish and, and strengthen even weak faith. So I it's like this, and I say, oh, thank you, God, that you're not calling for perfect faith. You're calling for healthy faith. And even that struggle, brothers, even that struggle of faith is, is necessarily indicative that your faith is diseased. As a matter of fact, all of us are struggling day by day to be people of faith, and it's a little bit up and down. And if you catch any of us at a down moment where, where we might even question ourselves, but God comes along and says, listen, you, you need to be a man whose faith is healthy. It ultimately means your faith is in me, sound in faith. Then he says, in love. He doesn't get real specific. Is this love for my family, for my friends, for the church, for the people I work with, neighbors? Is it love for God? Yep. All of that. I was thinking earlier in, in the week as I was looking at this, you know, Jesus reduced all of the commandments, the Big Ten for sure, but even if you read through the Old Testament, there's 613 commands and statutes and laws and regulations that are there. So Jesus reduced it all and simplified it, didn't he? He said, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then love others. And he, and he so wed those two together that you really can't separate love from God from love for others. So the older men of any given assembly ought to be men who are characterized by a healthy love for others. Again, not perfect, but healthy. And then he says, in steadfastness. Sound in steadfastness. That just has to do with that, that inward fortitude necessary to put up with hardship and stress. Guys, I know it's hard. Young men, it doesn't actually get easier I don't say that to discourage you. I say that because you, you will have to trust in God all the days of your life on planet Earth. Some of the issues change. Some kind of go away. New ones emerge. But there hasn't been one moment of my 53-plus years where I've been able to coast. There's a little phrase rolling around. You hear people say sometimes, we got this. I got this. You got this. No, we don't. Only God has this. So our, our faith in him, even our love for others, is only going to work out by his grace, but it is his grace that allows us to be men pluggers. Do you know what pluggers are? They're people who just plug away. Just day after day, they're there. 
They show up to work and do it. Doesn't seem to be change in the world, but they're there. Pluggers are sitting down at the dinner table, just interacting with family, with friends. Might be in the garage fixing the car. Might be making a phone call to check up on a neighbor. Working all that stuff in, even as they're trying to cut their own grass, keep up with the bills. All that stuff is there, but day after day, they're just plugging away. That's what steadfastness is all about. It's a life lived, though, in the presence of God. It's not simply that you just do all the stuff that, that adult requires of us. Rather, it's a life lived in the presence of God, faith in Him that works itself out in our day-to-day tasks and interactions with others, a love that works itself out in all of our relationships, both with God and with others, and finally, just that inner fortitude that says life is hard, but I'm hanging in there. How are you? Now, again, put it in its context. If you go back to chapter one, remember how Paul described the Cretans? I mean, even quotes one of their own, uh, one, one of their own prophets. Cretans are, what were the three characteristics? Liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Do you see the point of the gospel truth that Paul through Titus is bringing to bear upon this church? There should be a difference between the way you and I live our lives and the way non-followers of Jesus are living. Not only should, but must. And God's desire is not only that the older men in that little church in Crete would live in distinction from the Cretan lifestyle, but that all of us would aspire to follow him and be his disciples and live in such a way that the power of his gospel and Holy Spirit are evident in us. What's coming in this chapter, and I'm jealous because I won't be able to preach this. This is one of my favorite paragraphs in all the New Testament, but verse 11 says it's the grace of God that's appeared bringing salvation for all people. And then look at verse 12 real quickly. It's grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions you know, like lazy gluttony and other things in Crete, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's not just a matter of you and I exercising our will, saying, well, I'm going to live differently. I'm going to live for Jesus, and by, you know, by my own strength, I'm going to do this. No, we, that grace God gives, that's his desire. Men, do these words describe you? And a word to younger men? Some of you say, I'm off the hook. This is for 50-year-olds and up. no. First of all, it's actually for every believer. All of us should be characterized by this kind of thing. But younger men, if you want to become this kind of an older man, you need to devote yourself to it right now. There's not one of you in this room that's too young to start thinking in terms of becoming a man who is sober-minded, who is dignified, who is self-controlled, and sound in your faith, in your love, and in your steadfastness. Older men, some of you say, I've wasted so many years. Is it too late for me? By God's grace, it's not. By God's grace, you can become a man whose life is so centered in Jesus that there is that weight of dignity about it, that weight of of the Spirit's control over you, that kind of sober-mindedness that is spoken of here, that healthy faith and love and steadfastness where, in short order, you you could move from being maybe an infantile Christian to a mature man of faith that others look at and say, praise God for this man. It's not too late. Will you give yourself to it today? That's the first step. Well, sound living or or sound doctrine not only manifests itself in the sound living of of older men, it also manifests itself in the life of older women. There are the four particular characteristics 
Uh, and I want you to look at these again. First of all, older women should be reverent in behavior. Those are words that have reference to conduct appropriate to a place of worship. When I was a child growing up in South Carolina, we sometimes gathered for a Sunday morning service in the war memorial chapel of the Christian college that my parents uh, worked at and served in. And it's an impressive structure. It seats about 600 people, older wooden pews, stained uh, with a darker stain, and, and wood panel walls also stained. The architecture in and of itself is, is quite impressive. There's a pipe organ that fills the room powerfully and beautifully with its sound, and that was uh, quite an impressive way to, to worship, to sing with the accompaniment of that pipe organ behind us. And there are two pulpits on the platform. One, a heavier wooden uh, pulpit with some ornate craftsmanship there, and the other to the left, if you were seated in the audience, is a brass angel, slightly stooped forward and with a, a, a big uh, plank of, of wood fastened to the top that could be used for preaching or teaching. But as you entered that particular chapel in the entryway on either side, there are bronze plaques fastened to the wall. Many of of those heroes who gave their lives in wars past. There were also others who, while, did, who, who, while not giving their lives in sacrifice for the, the military service of this nation, had served perhaps that school so faithfully or just the cause of Christ that they were memorialized even after their death. And so entering this building from the front doors, through that entryway, down the aisles, finding your seat in your pew and, and looking around you, it was all impressive. And hanging on both side walls and then in the very front is a series of paintings done by the famous British artist Benjamin West. These are actually from the 18th century, commissioned by King George III for his private chapel uh, at Windsor Castle. And somehow, you know, our little school ended up with these things. And I gotta tell you, as a kid, when the sermon was less than appealing, those paintings were always interesting especially the one of Moses with the brass serpent and this horrific-looking serpent that was wrapped around that pole and other people in the background being bitten by these poisonous snakes. And it was one of those things where, wow. And you just kind of know, even as a little kid, walking into a place like this, that your behavior should be different from your behavior on the playground or even in your own living room. You know, when you're watching Andy Griffith and eating popcorn. The structure calls for reverence. And the terminology that Paul is using here about a godly older woman is that her behavior needs to be reverent. And ladies, this is not something that you simply put on as if you got to somehow do an act. You know, oh, I, I, I guess I want to honor Jesus, so I'm going I'm to be a woman of reverent behavior. You know how that reverence develops in your soul? When you, like godly men live in the presence of God. When you're just thinking moment by moment and day by day, I live and think and serve and work and, and, and prepare the meals and take care of my family in the presence of the Most High God. My life is a, a worship center to Him and for Him. And ladies, I wonder if you see each part of your life as an opportunity to worship the Most High God. Paul's not encouraging Titus to preach a message to ladies to, to tack on reverent behavior. No, all of this is tied ultimately to who God is and what he has done through Jesus Christ to rescue us. 
I wonder, ladies, if you were to look over this past week, the seven days since we last gathered here in this place, could, could you see that your thinking was tuned in this way, that each daily task, every conversation with a friend or family member, every post or tweet or text or phone call was being lived out in the presence of God. That's the only way it could amount to reverent behavior. But then Paul says, not slanderers. Do you know the word slanderer is a word when it's used as a title, translates as Satan. It's used in that way because it means uh, communication or an individual who falsely accuses with a view of dividing people one from another without reason. See, we describe the devil as Satan because he is an accuser. Revelation tells us he's an accuser of the brethren. That is, he actually goes into the presence of God and with great arrogance makes accusations against God's people. He may be more aware of our sin than we are. And he would love to stir it up and love to divide God from his people somehow. But praise God, we have an advocate with the Father, First John tells us, right? We've got the greatest lawyer in the universe, and the lawyer is the one who actually paid the debt of our sins. It's Jesus. So no accusation that Satan ever brings against us in the presence of God is going to stand. But you know that this Satan, this slanderer, also accuses God's reputation and work in our hearts, doesn't he? Some of you wrestle with that right now. Is God good? If God were good, why would he allow these circumstances to come into my life? If God really loved me, why wouldn't he show up and, and rescue me from this difficult situation? Why wouldn't he answer the prayer that I've prayed to him for 20, 30, 40 years now? Why would we continue to go through such hard circumstances? God, where are you? Careful. Those kinds of accusations ultimately have one source. It's not from God himself. The devil is the slanderer, the Satan. And so an individual who falsely accuses others with a view of, first of all, damaging their reputations and then dividing them one from another is a person, as one author says, who is doing the devil's work. You're making his job easier. Listen to the full Paragraph of thoughts from this one author. Those persons who cannot control their tongues in speaking lies, false accusations, and spreading malicious gossip, where, whether true or untrue, do the work of Satan himself. They cannot be slanderers and serve God. This exhortation to self-mastery of the tongue is especially directed toward women. However, self-control in this area applies to all Christian believers. Just one of the references from the New Testament that speaks to this issue for all of us is James 3, 1 through 12. So men, don't look at you know, the ladies in this room and say, that's their issue. It's not really a guy thing. Oh, yes, it is. It's a human thing. But the Spirit of God put it on Paul's heart to speak of it specifically with reference to older women. Now, again, in its context, if, if godly women are of this nature where they speak truth with grace, they're not slandering, damaging the reputations of others, dividing people one from another, what a contrast that is to chapter 1, verse 10. Look back as Paul describes uh, some of the false teachers and others in that surrounding community. He described them as empty talkers and, what's the second word? Deceivers, our speech must stand in contrast to the speech of the world. 
Ladies, I ask you to consider before God today, is your tongue or pen, if you write the old-fashioned way, or the keyboard on your computer or laptop, are those things tools of grace and truth, or have they become weapons of slanderous attack? The third characteristic is not slaves to much wine. Now, first, let's reach back to the list of characteristics given to the older men and remember that two of those had to do with self-control. And I told you that sober-minded, if we were translating it in a very literal, pedantic way, would be with not, not mixed with wine. And even though it wasn't about the use of alcohol in that section with reference to older men, it is here. But I want you to see there's a corollary here. There, there is a similar theme being developed through these three characteristics where we are to be people who are self-controlled, who are sober-minded, and specific to older ladies, not slaves to much wine. That's a strong word, slave. It means to be dominated by some external influence, to actually become the legal property, in this case, of wine. Now, before we just kind of like say, you know, so don't be drunk, ladies. Don't, don't be slaves. Don't be controlled by wine. I, I want to dive a little deeper for just a few minutes than this simple prohibition and see if we can't discover some of the real issues in our heart that we're struggling with that will position uh, a woman of any age or a man of any age, for that matter, for this type of difficulty. About eight weeks ago, I began to experience pain in my right hip. Initially, it's no big deal. You know, aches and pains show up at odd times, and most of them go away. But over the course of that time, it just got more intense, more intense, until about three weeks ago, I said, I've got to get some help. And so I asked, the first call I made was to Cody Smith, who's a trained massage therapist, talked to him about it. He worked on me some. And by the way, a shameless advertisement for Cody and Denise Smith. Both of them are professionals. Both of them are prepared to help people in need, and I'm grateful that Cody was where he was. But even in addition to that, I've gone to a doctor who prescribed a five-day regimen of prednisone. I've gone to a sports medicine doctor who put me through some tests and then recommended lots more ibuprofen and stretching and exercises. Uh, and I will say in the past six weeks, I've probably used more ibuprofen than I have in all the years of my life combined. I've used heating pads, ice packs, castor oil compresses, Bengay, Asper cream, and Arnica gel to relieve the pain. I've taken vitamin supplements, uh, fasted from certain foods that are known or believed to aggravate in inflammation in your joints. I've used the daily stretching and exercise techniques uh, that were, have been recommended to me, all because I was desperate to find relief from pain. And I have prayed. I don't like pain. I don't know any normal human being who does. And you know what's interesting? There have also been moments where like the physical pain was translating into some spiritual or emotional issues. I've been angry. I've been a little depressed. I've been frustrated. I've been confused. I've, I've felt a, an array of emotions. Pain is a powerful force. Inflammation in a joint is one thing, but what do we do with the pain or inflammation of the soul? Well, we often seek things to help, and we should. There's nothing inherently evil about seeking help or relief for the pain of our hearts. And sometimes we seek those things that might take the edge off or something that might cool the anger or soothe the worry or lift us out of discouragement or depression, right? And when you find something that works well, you tend to stick with it, and it becomes a friend and an ally, but occasionally it actually becomes the master, the controlling force. I read an article this week from 2016 about prescription drug addiction in Utah. 
we're all painfully aware, not only the high numbers, but of the personal tragedies that unfold daily. Did you know that in Utah, approximately one person dies every day from prescription drug abuse? So we're not talking about illegal drugs. We're just talking about prescription drug abuse. And one father whose 25-year-old son overdosed said in an interview, this, this was like eye-opening, jarring to my soul, but not totally surprising either, but just to hear him state it this way. His comment was, organized religion is part of the problem. He says, I go to church every week and I see where the challenge is. They make people feel that they should be perfect and they feel inferior like they can't live up to the standards of what they expect them to live up to. So they start using prescription painkillers, not to address physical pain, but the mental issues that go along with feeling inferior, that you just cannot cope with all the things you're expected to be and to do. You ever feel that way? I do. In the same article, another lady whose sister overdosed And she herself, by her own description, is a recovering addict, but now works as an addictions counselor. She stated, my sister found the medication helped with the physical pain, but it also eased emotional pain. In Utah, we have a phenomenon known as toxic perfectionism. There's a belief among some that you need to be perfect. It's keeping up with the Joneses times 10. What a tragedy. What an explanation for the weakness and vulnerability in the soul that might begin to look for something in a bottle of wine or a bottle of prescription medication or even through what our legal system has said are illegal drugs. The desperation and pain of a soul so great that we say, I have to find relief. I have to anesthetize the suffering within. See, that's why I want to be really careful just to, you know, cavalierly say, ladies, you shouldn't be slaves to much wine. We actually need to press beneath that because if all we do is give you a prohibition, but there really is no hope of a life-altering alternative like Jesus and the gospel, what have we done to you but simply added to your pain and frustration, your sense of inferiority, that toxic as as Mindy Vincent describes it, that toxic perfectionism. And some of you already feel like a loser and you've worked really hard but exhausted yourself in it. Even on this day, you feel so frustrated. And some of you, if you were honest, would say, I didn't really want to come to church because I've, my, my worst fear is that I just hear another message on like how terrible I am. And if all we do here is tell you how terrible you are, we've only given you half of the gospel because the back half of the gospel is the glorious part that says, yeah, you actually are worse than you'd ever want to admit, but Jesus loves you more than you would ever imagine. And by his life and death and resurrection, he's done it all. So rest. Give him your toxic perfectionism. Give him your years of frustration and anguish. Give him your your efforts to keep up with the Joneses. Because your life at the end of the day is not going to be evaluated on whether you kept up with the Joneses. It's actually going to be evaluated on whether you were perfect in God's eyes as he requires. And not one of us is righteous, Paul says in Romans, not one. But there is a righteousness which comes by faith. Not works. Not your personal quest to be good enough. It's interesting to me that this kind of religious thinking 
that says be perfect, be perfect, be perfect, be perfect, be perfect, try harder, try harder, be more committed, keep your vows, keep your commandments, uh, keep the commandments, do all these things. There, there's extra ritual, there's extra knowledge that you need to know, there's, there's extra stuff, it's Jesus plus, Jesus plus. That always leads to inflammation of the soul and pain of such a nature that no ibuprofen and no amount of wine is gonna deaden it. Where do you get relief? Well, the ultimate relief is found in the grace of God's forgiveness and the gift of righteousness that is through Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ is not a message of do all that you can do and let Jesus make up the difference. The good news of the gospel is come to him broken as you are and trade your sin for his death on the cross. Trade your failures for his perfect righteousness. Come to him. When we as followers become enslaved to things like wine or prescription drugs for relief or there are a thousand other things that we can run to, do you see how that undermines the message we so desperately want to share? Now look at the last thing. There, older women are to teach and specifically to teach what is good. And verse four says, and so train the young women. And then Titus gives, it really is a both and. Older women, this is what you should be teaching. Younger women, this is what you should aspire to. And we'll get to that in the weeks to come. But what's sweet to me is that the context shows that this is a reference, as one author writes, not to an official teaching position in the church. Ladies, there's not one of you that has to have the designation like women's ministry teacher. It, it actually seems to be something that's just worked out in one-on-one relationship, encouragement as, as you as an older woman come alongside a younger woman or maybe even in groups or conversations and, and stuff just comes out. I, I loved Thursday night seeing groups of men and some groups of women um, and, and just sitting on the edge of the playground. So, you know, you young moms whose kids were on uh, the, the playground equipment, you know, you're keeping one eye there. And Kristen told me a little bit about some of the things that were discussed and whatnot. And part of me was like, you know what? Keep all of whatever needs to be kept in confidence. That's great. But I'm just so happy to see an older woman or women just talking to younger women. And sometimes it's just surface stuff. There's not like significant instruction. But frequently, you, you young moms know, you're like, I need to talk to somebody. What do I do? And um, there are older women here who can share out of their past experiences and past heartaches and failures and difficulties and, and just life, how God has shown his grace and done things that you prayed and prayed would happen. And you hear those stories and say, well, maybe there's hope for my two-year-old. Well, there really is. You don't feel like it. So you need not only the, the truth of God's word coming from an older woman, you just need to hear the real stories of how, the, how they've applied it and lived it. What a powerful, powerful model of discipleship. Just a little preview. I know that this fall, God willing, the women's ministry will return to some formal teaching and instruction times, but you don't have to wait for an announcement to be made that you know, Tuesday nights, the ladies are going to gather at the church at 7 o'clock and study this curriculum or study this book of the Bible or whatever. Younger women, you can pursue this. And older women, don't be intimidated. Because I know some of you feel like, I'm no spiritual giant. I mean, what do I have to share? You have your life and heart to share. And sometimes one of the greatest gifts we can give one another is being really vulnerable and transparent and say, can I tell you about a time that I blew it? If nothing else, learn from my negative example. But you should try to get to, God is gracious. 
Uh, not one of us stands up here because we have perfect families any more than we stand up here because we have perfect faith or perfect love or perfect steadfastness. Health is what we're after. And it's the same for older women and younger women alike. Now, where does this leave us? Well, I want to go back to those three big purpose statements. Don't lose sight of this. We, we live in this way, first of all, because the truth gets in us. But as it works its way out, here's the effect, that the word of God may not be reviled. We live in an age where you, as a committed follower of Jesus Christ, are going to be viewed as a wacko. You really believe that God created all that is? <laughs> Laughable. You really believe there are only two genders? And that traditional marriage, as God prescribed in the Bible, is the way it should be? You're an idiot. That's what reviling would be, all right? But if we live in such a way where there's a health to our lives, a consistency between what we preach and how we live, then, then the word of God is not reviled. We're the living proof that these, these things are achievable, attainable, or part of God's plans. Verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And finally, so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God. I know I said Christmas is coming, 124 days to finish your shopping and decorate your houses and get ready for that. But you know, the opportunity right now to adorn this glorious gospel by healthy living is, is front and center for all of us. So may God give us grace to live truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope that you've given us. We thank you for your son, our savior. He is, he is beautiful beyond description. And we want our lives to reveal that. Thank you that you're, you're not calling us to live at such a spiritual level that no one here could achieve it or attain it. First of all, you've given us your spirit. Then you've given us your grace. You've given us your promises. You are powerfully at work through ordinary, imperfect people like us. You have shown us the way of health. You've called us to be healthy followers of Jesus. Now just let it work out in such an extraordinary way that our communities, our schools, our workplaces would recognize there is a living God in heaven who sent his son into this world to rescue us, please. And then cause us, by your grace, to breathe, uh, to, to breathe that, that same love and grace we've received into the hearts of others. Some are so weary, whether it be a young mom who would love to just have a word of encouragement or even a hug from an older woman who says, I've been there, you will, you will survive. You will see God do extraordinary things. And let me just share with you, Older men who come alongside younger men and saying, hang in there, brother, I'm praying for you. How can I encourage you? Tell me about your work. Oh, Lord God, let these relationships just grow and deepen as we grow and deepen in this sound doctrine of Jesus Christ. All of this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.